this thing on? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Volunteers, can't live with them, can't live without them. I'm just kidding. Thanks for joining us this morning at Prairie View. We're very glad that you're here with us today. And as I mentioned last week, we're starting a new sermon series this morning, attempting to look at our money from a biblical perspective. Now, you may have noticed recently over the past six months or so that our Sunday morning attendance numbers have increased. And so the elders and I put our heads together and we thought, man, you know, all these new people we don't really know very well. They're taking our seats. That's more people we have to pray for, more people we have to care for. What can we do to get some of these new people out of here? So the conclusion we came to, the strategy that we discovered was, why don't we preach about money? That would be a great option. I mean, let's be honest. Let's have a show of hands, in fact. Who here looks forward to hearing sermons about money? Really? Y'all are weird. It's certainly a minority. I think the idea is that very few of us get excited when the time rolls around to talk about how our Christian faith affects our wallets. Why? Well, it could be several different reasons. Maybe we've heard too many stories of corruption within the church. We've heard stories of embezzlement scandals by leaders. We've seen preachers who view their congregants as nothing more than a cash cow for their lavish lifestyle. And so we think, you know what? The church doesn't really have a whole lot of credibility with me when it comes to talking about money. Maybe we don't like talking about it because money is just a stressful topic. Even if you're doing pretty well financially right now, you get stressed out about having enough money for retirement down the road. You get stressed out about how little it would actually take to ruin even your best financial planning. Others among us get stressed because we hardly have enough money to keep the lights on, keep food on the table, keep clothes on our backs, much less pay off the debt that we owe. So money simply stresses us out. And others don't like when the church talks about money because we've sat through too many guilt trips. We don't like hearing sermons that demonize our financial success when we've achieved that success through good, honest, hard work. We don't like feeling guilty. Now, we may have good reasons to not like when the church talks about money, but we may have bad reasons as well. But regardless of what your reasoning is, we can't avoid the fact that the Bible speaks a lot about money. It was clearly an important topic for the human authors of Scripture, as well as the God who inspired their writing. I mean, this is all over the pages of Scripture. The Old Testament, the New Testament, books of history, books of wisdom, books of poetry, prophecy. It's in the Gospels, it's in Paul's letters. You name it. It's all over the place in Scripture. So as Christians, as people who claim to uphold the Bible as our highest authority for how we think and for how we live, we must be willing to talk about what the Bible says about our money. So over the next four weeks, we're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of wealth, according to the Bible. And then in that fourth week, that last week, we're going to put it all together and try to sum up what it looks like for God's people to have a healthy relationship with our money and with our possessions, to keep things in the right place. And one thing we're going to discover along the way, for good or for ill, is that the Bible's teaching on wealth isn't always as simple as we might like it to be. But again, as people who are reconciled to God our Father, 
People who have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. People who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. People submitting to the word of God. People in community with fellow believers in the church. I pray that we would think about and use our wealth differently than we did before we were saved. That's my prayer for this sermon series. That if nothing else, we would think about and use our wealth differently than we did before we knew Christ. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Feel free to follow along in the Bibles that we provide and take one of those Bibles home with you if you don't own one. But before we actually do any reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, as we've mentioned, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for those amongst us who are guests, those who are new. We're grateful to have them here as well. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we continue worshiping, as we listen to your word. I pray that we would submit to your word, that you would give us open hearts and open minds to hear it, that your Holy Spirit would be active in opening our hearts and in opening our minds to what your word has to say. Father, we lift up any prayer requests that might be out there this morning, uh, things listed in our bulletin, uh, things on the prayer board out in the lobby, things like Hurricane Matthew. Um, we pray for those who are suffering, those who are hurting, those who have lost loved ones, those who have lost property. Uh, watch over those people who are suffering from that storm. And we also pray for our election, uh, as things certainly look a little bit chaotic, as so many of us, I'm sure, are wrestling with how to vote and how not to vote in a way that honors you. So, Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us discernment, and that we would treat others with respect, even as they disagree with us. And, Father, we pray for those who are suffering in various other ways. We know there are people out there. Some of us may come in this morning and feel like we're on top of the world, and others of us come in and feel like things could not possibly get worse. So, Father, I pray for all of those people. I pray that we would honor you, that we would glorify you, that we would seek you, and that we would find you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, before we actually dive into Genesis 1, let's acknowledge a few important truths. Truth number one. Throughout history, we Christians have had a complicated relationship with financial and material wealth. I mean, think about it. We so often admire those who shun wealth for the sake of the gospel. That's a big reason why Pope Francis was so popular when he first became Pope, right? He shunned wealth. He shunned the fancy car. He shunned the extravagant palace. He shunned the incredibly ornate priestly garb. And people loved him for it because he was so humble. Because he wasn't attached to riches and to wealth. For a lot of people, Mother Teresa, or rather Saint Teresa, is the greatest example of poverty and humility for the sake of the gospel. She's the gold standard. Just this past week, Saint Francis of Assisi, who is known for his rejection of worldly wealth, had an entire day dedicated to his remembrance. We look at people who shun wealth for the sake of the gospel and we think, man, that is so wonderful that they're doing that. I'm not going to do it, but... I'm glad they're doing it. That's really honorable of them. But, while on the one hand we admire those who shun wealth for the sake of Christ, we also often view wealth 
as a sure sign of God's blessing. We often assume that if someone is wealthy, if someone is successful, then they must be living right, right? God must be very, very pleased with them if they have all that stuff. So we're a little bit inconsistent in how we view wealth. We have a complicated relationship with wealth. But it's not just Christians who have a complicated relationship with wealth. This is truth number two. It seems like our entire culture does as well. There are so many debates about how one obtains wealth. Do you acquire wealth through good, old-fashioned, honest, hard work? Or do you acquire wealth because of some unfair privilege? The cards are stacked in your favor. And the cards are stacked against other people. The whole idea of the American dream, classically understood, centers upon wealth and success. But at the same time, those who achieve wealth and success are often viewed as villains in our culture. And this doesn't even get into the bigger concerns that our society has about wealth. Issues like income inequality or the welfare system or debates about capitalism and socialism, which one leads to the most human flourishing. And what are we going to do about that $20 trillion national debt? It's not just Christians who have a complicated relationship with wealth. It seems like our entire culture does as well. And finally, truth number three. If you're sitting in this room today, by most standards, you are very, very wealthy. By almost every single measurement, Sitting here this morning makes you more rich than a significant majority of people worldwide. In the year 2013, Americans spent roughly $56 billion on pets. Some studies say that Americans will spend well over $25 billion this year on video games. In 2012, the Wall Street Journal found that Americans spent over $500 million on, guess what, Twinkies. million on Twinkies. Yep. Hey, you know what? Some things you can't go cheap on. Got to get the name brand, Twinkies. Getting fired up. I'm passionate about Twinkies. Christians historically have had a complicated relationship with wealth. Our society often has a complicated relationship with wealth, and by every measurement that you can imagine, if you live in the United States of America, you are quite wealthy compared to the rest of the world. So yet again, as wealthy people, it makes it that much more important that we look to Scripture for guidance and wisdom for how we think about and how we handle our wealth. And no matter what kind of financial state you think you're in, good or bad, I'm confident that God has something to say to you about your wealth. So again, this morning, we're going to focus on the good. If you're wealthy, you chose the good Sunday to be here. The guilt trips will be the next few weeks. And like things we talked about over the summer, things like technology, things like work, wealth can be a wonderful gift of God. And wealth can be used in beautiful, God-honoring ways. So let's begin looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. God speaking to Adam, God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, 
And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now you might read these verses and think, what in the world does that have to do with wealth? Well, what it has to do with it is that from the very beginning, we see a simple yet important principle. And that principle is that God wants people created in his image to have the things they need to survive. Before sin enters the world, God provides Adam and Eve with everything they would ever need. Now, granted, it won't just be handed to them on a silver spoon. God does give them the job of tending and working the garden. It won't be easy. But it's safe to say that in a sinless garden of Eden, in a perfect world, there would be no poverty. Adam, Eve, their offspring, you and me, would suffer no want in that perfect world. But as we all know, we don't live in the Garden of Eden, do we? We don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world that is very clearly fallen. Thus, we do see people who lack the basic necessities of survival. Sometimes that's because of the wicked and unjust actions of others, things outside of their control. Sometimes it's through their own poor decisions. In our society, it's often a little bit of both. But sin has messed up the world, and sin has messed up us. And we see this all too clearly, all too obviously, in how our world thinks about and uses wealth. Let's jump forward to Genesis chapter 12, continuing the story of God redeeming creation, redeeming humanity from the fall in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jump forward to verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So as we continue in this plan of God, the story of God redeeming creation, redeeming humanity from the consequences of sin, God chooses to call a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. Abraham will be given the promised land, countless offspring. His family will be blessed in order that the rest of the world may be blessed as well. You hear that phrase, blessed to be a blessing? Sometimes that phrase is a little bit abused overused, but we do see that idea in Genesis 12. And this land, this real estate that God would give Abraham would be full of wealth. Exodus describes it as a land overflowing with milk and honey. The land would provide them with everything they would ever need, and even more than that. It almost sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Well, not quite. But inheriting this land... It wouldn't happen overnight. After a lengthy stay as slaves in Egypt, God frees Abraham's offspring from captivity. 
And as they leave Egypt, God commands them to plunder the Egyptians of their wealth, their silver, their gold. That way they would have everything they need for their journey. But then we get to Deuteronomy 6, where God explicitly tells the people that when they make it to this land, when they acquire even more great wealth, houses and cities and walls that they didn't build, gardens that they didn't plant, they would only keep this land. They would only keep this wealth if they continued to obey him, if they were faithful to him. If they worshipped him and him alone. Now this pattern continues throughout much of the Old Testament. This expectation. If God's people will do what he tells them to do. If they'll work hard. They'll be blessed with great wealth. We see the pattern in passages like Psalm 112. Starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Seems pretty clear. Honor God, obey God, and you'll have all the stuff you need and all the stuff you want. Right? Look at Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will be bursting with wine. Again, honor God, obey him, worship him, and you'll have all the stuff that you want. Sounds pretty good. We ought to just stop right there, right? But let's be honest about it. Step back for a moment and ask yourself, is that really how the world works? In fact, is that really even what we see in the pages of Scripture? Is it really true? Is it really a foolproof strategy that as long as I worship God, as long as I work hard, I'll be rich? No. We know it's not that simple. All the time we see people who do not honor God, who do not work very hard, and yet they have great wealth. Meanwhile, we see people who do look to honor God with every ounce of their being. They work as hard as they possibly can. And yet they can barely make ends meet. So what gives? Was God not telling the truth? No, that's not the issue. The issue is that we often like to take texts like these and oversimplify them. We take them out of context from the rest of Scripture. Out of context from the character of God. Out of context from God's big overarching plan for redemption. And when we take these passages out of context, it can lead us to some really dangerous extremes. For example, one dangerous extreme, the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that if you just have enough faith, if you just have a positive enough attitude, if you just say the right words with the right amount of confidence, then God will make you wealthy. God will make you happy. And of course, if that doesn't work, the problem's not with God. The problem's with you. You must not have enough faith. You must not have enough trust or confidence. You must not have said the right words. Well, why don't you ask Job about that unhealthy extreme of the prosperity gospel? 
Because as the story goes, Job was the most righteous man around, could seemingly do no wrong, loved God, loved everyone else, worked hard. And yet God allowed Satan to take everything from Job. His finances, his health, his family, his influence, all of it's gone. But the beauty of the book of Job is that even as Job loses everything this world has to offer him, Job does not lose his faith in God. In the Old Testament, and really in the rest of the Bible, wealth is seen as a good gift from God. It is often seen as a direct blessing from God. But wealth is never presented as the highest good. And contrary to the teaching of the prosperity gospel, God's primary concern is not for you to have money. God's primary concern is for you to have him. Because he is the highest good. Not wealth. Not money. Not stuff. Job got that. The prophet Habakkuk got that as well. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Habakkuk, this prophet of God's people, knew that they were about to lose everything. He knew that Babylon was coming, that they were going to absolutely destroy all the things that Israel had worked so hard for. They were going to take away all the things that God had given them. They had been disobedient, and they were going to be punished, and they deserved it. And yet look at what Habakkuk says in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Guys like Job and guys like Habakkuk took comfort in the fact that even when they have nothing else, even when their wealth is gone, even when their prosperity is taken away, they still have God. They understand that wealth, sure, it's a good thing, but it's not the highest good, not even close. God is the highest good. We jump forward to the New Testament. There's an important passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 18. Paul writes there specifically addressing wealthy Christians, wealthy believers, that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The reason this passage is so important is because it illustrates a big point. It illustrates that one can be wealthy and be Christian at the same time in the pages in the New Testament. Again, wealth is a good thing. We talked a moment ago about the unhealthy extreme of the prosperity gospel, this teaching that God's primary concern is giving me wealth, and that if I just do all the right things, if I just say all the right things, God will then be obligated to reward me. Well, 1 Timothy 6 eliminates the opposite extreme. That's just as wrong. The opposite extreme of the prosperity gospel is asceticism. It's the idea that 
The less wealth I have, the more holy I am. If I have less stuff, then God must love me more. Now, it's true that Jesus may call some people to abandon their wealth for the sake of the gospel. He challenges the rich young man to do exactly that. You can't get around it. It's also true that Jesus himself was likely of very mediocre wealth as a child and was by no means rich during his adult ministry. Not even close. But more often than not, as we read the New Testament, we see wealthy people becoming Christians and God using them in unique ways. We see wealthy people using their resources to serve God and serve others in a way that they never would have done before. Look at a passage like Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 6. Speaking to the church, Paul writes, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Okay, use your gifts. Well, what are your gifts? Verse 8, the one who contributes in generosity. Paul seems to be saying that having the means to contribute, having the means to be generous, is like a spiritual gift from God. In the New Testament, a wealthy Christian is someone who once used their wealth only to honor and serve themselves. But now, because of Christ, they use it to serve and honor God. They use it to serve and honor others. So if you are wealthy and Christian at the same time, which again includes most people in this room, then you have been given a great gift. If you have the things that you need and then some, you are part of a privileged few in this world. And if you're wealthy and Christian at the same time, that means you have a responsibility to use that good gift of wealth in a positive, God-honoring manner. You have the opportunity to serve God and serve others in ways that many people can't. If you are a wealthy Christian, you can use your wealth to love and serve those people who, through the consequences of sin, through the consequences of their own actions, have a lot less than you do. Out of your surplus, you can meet the needs of others who don't have enough to make ends meet. And according to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, that includes those people who really don't deserve your help when you're honest about it. And it also includes those people who have absolutely nothing to offer in return. If you're wealthy and Christian, think about the unique ways that you can use your wealth to worship. In John chapter 12, a woman, likely a prostitute, comes to Jesus and anoints him with expensive perfume as an act of worship. No practical use for this act of worship, purely just an act of worship. And Judas, hypocritically, of all people, speaks up and questions her stewardship. He says, think about how many poor people you could have fed. The same question people ask any time a church builds a building. Think about how many poor people you could have fed with that money. But Jesus makes it clear that there is a place for extravagant forms of worship. So if you have significant wealth, think of those unique ways that you can use that wealth explicitly for the sake of worshiping God and bringing him glory. If you're wealthy and Christian, you can use your wealth to support missions locally and around the globe. 
Paul probably supported himself through his own trade of making tents. That's a lot of how he did his ministry, a lot of how he did his traveling. But he was probably funded by other believers as well, other believers who had more money than he did. There are people out there right now loving and serving and presenting the gospel to people that you will never meet. And you might not get the opportunity to do that ministry. You might never be a missionary. But you can use your wealth to support those who are. You can help them do ministry. If you're wealthy and Christian, you can use your wealth to support the local church. The church in Philippi may have never gotten off the ground if not for a wealthy Christian woman named Lydia. Lydia hosted the church in her home. She offered hospitality to Paul and other Christian leaders. And in that world, Lydia probably had to work pretty hard to attain her wealth, to attain her success, to attain her influence. And yet when Lydia was transformed by the grace of God, she didn't hesitate to use her money to do good God-honoring ministry through her local church in Philippi. I pray that you would do the same here at Prairie View. And if you're wealthy and Christian, you can speak up for the cause of the suffering. In a fallen world, the voices of the poor, the voices of the oppressed are often drowned out. They're often ignored. Why would we listen to them? But in the worlds of theologian ACDC, money talks. Money talks. So if you've acquired worldly wealth and worldly influence, you can serve as a voice for the voiceless. You can speak out against corruption and injustice and wickedness. If you're wealthy and Christian, your wealth can be a wonderful, God-honoring thing that truly brings him glory if you'll allow it to be used by God. So in closing, if you're sitting in this room, you are likely pretty wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And your wealth is a good thing that can be used by God for his glory. So I pray that we would use that gift well. I pray that we would avoid the extremes we talked about, that assuming that all God cares about is giving you money. That's not all God cares about. That's probably not very high on God's priority list. Or the opposite end of the spectrum, the opposite extreme, I pray you wouldn't believe that your wealth somehow makes God love you less. It doesn't. But I also pray that we'd remember those words of Paul from 1 Timothy 6, verses 18 and 19, when it comes to our wealth. That we would never forget that while our wealth is good, it's not the highest good. God himself is the highest good. Your wealth can run out. Your wealth can be taken from you. Your wealth can be squandered by your own poor decisions. But God offers that which is truly life. Reconciliation to him through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning that we would leave grateful for our wealth. But that we'd be even more grateful for Christ who saved us. Let's pray. Father, again, you have given us so much if we're sitting in this room. 
There are things that we have that other people in this world can only dream of. And so, Father, I pray that we would use it well. I pray that we would use it for your glory. I pray that we'd use it for the good of others, the good of the community around us, that your kingdom may be known. And Father, I pray that as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, that we would avoid the temptation to worship our wealth. I pray we'd avoid those extremes of thinking that wealth is all there is or thinking that wealth is somehow inherently evil. It's a good gift. So I pray that we'd use it in good ways. And even though it's good, it's not the greatest good. Your son is the greatest good. So I pray that we would keep that in mind. That as we see in the stories of Job, the pages of Habakkuk, that even if we lost everything, if the vine shouldn't blossom, if there's no herd in the stalls, that as long as we have you, we have what we ultimately need. So, Father, thank you for our wealth. May we leave here and use it in ways that honor and glorify you. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.